right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson going solo today, and I'm going to be joined by a couple of DLs on today's show. David Lesky will join us at 340 here to talk some Royals, MLB draft, trade deadline, All-Star Week. Uh, actually, kind of a good amount happening for the Kansas City Royals, though that uh, hasn't always been the case so far this season. Then our other DL, David Lawrence, is going to join us coming up here at about 425. We're going to talk KU football with DL. Then we've got some other stuff coming at you today. Right off uh, the top here. Let's get to our KU football position preview of the wide receivers. We've done the uh, quarterback position, running back position, and the tight end slash fullback position so far. What about the wide receivers? I think this is the biggest. It's not that, you know, I want to call it a weakness. I, th- I think that it's just the most unproven of any of the offensive position groups for KU. And honestly, this might be the most unproven of any group on the offensive or defensive side of the ball. Again, doesn't mean there's not talent there. It's just that we haven't seen a lot of it kind of, you know, break out yet, which maybe that happens this year. So let's start with what they lost from last year. A couple names that, you know, transferred away, um, didn't really have high impact on this team. Magic Rector, who, you know, that was a guy that I think like Emmett Jones and, and some people were high on coming out of high school, didn't play last year, but kind of thought that maybe his future in, in two years, three years, whatever, that, that he could be a contributor. But he transfers away. Kyler Pearson transfers away. Tristan Golightly. And then Jamal Horn, who um, was a, you know really, really fast, wasn't really ever in the mix much at receiver, but we saw him a good amount on special teams. That group of four, though, and again, like some of those guys had – to certain extents, like, you know, highly regarded among KU football recruiting classes. Well, they combined for just one catch for nine yards last season. So you're not losing a ton, you know, in terms of immediate production or anything from that group that is going away. Um, the big one that you lost is Kwame Lasseter, and that was a loss via graduation. He's now with the Cincinnati Bengals trying to make the roster as an undrafted free agent. And Obviously, I'd, I'd imagine that's got to be tough when you already basically know that, you know, the three receivers with Jamar Chase, Tyler Boyd, and uh, T. Higgins are going to be there. But, you know, that also means they're going to have less resources in in um, kind of their, their receivers four through six. And from all reports I've, I've seen, it looks like he's kind of impressing early on. So I would love to see him make the roster over there in Cincinnati. But nonetheless, uh, he had 59 catches, did Kwame Laster last year. Second best on the team had just 27. If you combine second and third best on the team last year, they had less catches than Kwame Lasseter did individually. Lasseter also had 653 receiving yards. 
Second best had 364. So another sizable gap there. Over his course of his career, Kwame Lasseter had 1,550 career receiving yards. Now, those aren't numbers that jump off as like, oh, he had 1,200 receiving yards, but compared to the other guys on the roster, like he was, he was clearly the number one on that team. Can someone emerge in that role is going to be key, and it's not just over the course of you know, that season where, as shown, he had a lot bigger receiving numbers than the next best guy. How about the last four games of the season? He developed quite the chemistry with Jalen Daniels. So over the last four games of the season, you have the three Jalen Daniels starts, and you have the other game, which is against Kansas State, where it wasn't fully a start, and he didn't get a full game, but Jason Bean gets injured kind of early in that game, and Jalen Daniels comes in. So essentially four games with Jalen Daniels. Over those four games, Kwame Lasseter had 29 catches, 296 yards, and two touchdowns. And over the course of a 12-game season, if you extrapolated that out, Basically, when Kwame Lasseter was playing with Jalen Daniels, he was on pace for about 87 catches, almost 900 yards, six touchdowns. That's a lot of production and about as much production we've seen from the receiver position. You know, you have like Steven Sims. Um, it, it was really balanced receiving with like Andrew Parchment, Stephon Robinson, and uh, Daylon, Daylon Charlotte in 2019, where none of those guys went for like 900, 1,000 yards. But you know, prior to those guys and, and Steven Sims, I mean, you had, again, kind of balanced receiving numbers with guys like Nigel King and Jimmy Mundine and, and Nick Harwell and stuff. But you'd have to go back to like Desmond Briscoe and Kerry Meyer and, and stuff like that for the last true KU receiver who put up, you know, really good numbers. But those numbers from Kwame Lasseter, if that was the pace of the whole season with Jalen Daniels, 87 catches for 900 yards, six touchdowns. Those would be really good numbers. Like Those would be top five KU receiver numbers over the last 10, 15 years. Um, so you lose a lot there. Again, he was the clear number one. The distance between him and the next best guy was pretty apparent. Somebody has to maybe fill those shoes. I don't know. We'll get to that in a second. As far as the returners, um, I, I should probably also mention, you know, if you just want to look at from a non-stat perspective and more of an analytical perspective, like pro football focus, Kwame Lasseter was the highest graded receiver, 73.6 grade on receiving plays. There are a lot of returners. This is a position group that actually um, was mentioned in the offseason. KU didn't sign any incoming freshman at receiver. was that they felt over scholarship there. Now, some guys, as mentioned before, you had four guys transfer away, so you ended up bringing somebody back on to transfer in. They also have like three commits already for 2023 in the receiver room. But they do have a lot of of returners here for a team that I don't know how much like three or four receiver formations we're really going to see outside of like clear passing downs. LJ Arnold's is uh, a big one, quite literally six foot three. He's a redshirt sophomore. He has three years left to play, and that was a you know as big as as any transfer recruit that the KU has brought in that Lance Leipold has brought in. Keeping L.J. Arnold was a very big one as well. He flirted with entering the transfer portal, ended up staying back to KU. I don't know what the reasoning was for him possibly leaving at first and then deciding to come back, but I would imagine his relationship with Emmett Jones, where that was the guy that recruited him here. He's, he's from Dallas, and you have Emmett Jones leave to go elsewhere, and that relationship is no longer there. Maybe you start to rethink about, well, why am I here? But staff seemed to have done a good job and, and convinced him to stick around. His pro football focus grade, not not great, 63.6 um, as far as receiving goes. 
I mean, among the receivers that, that played a, enough snaps, you would be looking at Kwame Lasseter, one, Luke Grimm, number two, Trevor Wilson, number three, and then LJ Arnold, number four there. And then it's a big drop-off to the next best guy as far as just purely receivers go. Uh, but he's a big-bodied receiver and you know, very important to have him back. I, I think that there's a real chance he could step in to being that number one receiver. But there's there's other guys who are in competition. One of those could be Trevor Wilson. Five foot eleven redshirt junior. He does have three years left to play, though. Former Buffalo transfer, the speedster. Uh, you have Luke Grimm, who's kind of your your consummate slot guy, and and you know, uh, six foot junior. He has three years left. He's shown a nice connection with um, Jalen Daniels, and he actually, of the returning receivers, has the highest grade for receiving. On Pro Football Focus, 70.4 among KU's receivers. Jordan Medley, 6'2". Uh, by the way, Grimm does have three years left. He's a junior. Jordan Medley is a 6'2 redshirt junior. Not sure how much we'll see him. Haven't really seen a ton of him. I think he was a former quarterback coming out of high school. I don't know if he has two or three years left. Stephen McBride is a six-foot junior. He had three years left. We heard a lot about him last offseason headed into the year, and, and it seemed like they really wanted to get him involved. But it never really materialized much. But clearly, there's some talent there, and he's got a lot of speed on the outside. Tanaka Scott is a six foot four redshirt freshman. He has four years left to play. Big body at six foot four. Redshirted last year. He's more of a straight line runner. Like he could be a deep threat. He can be a big body guy. Maybe not as much shiftiness to him. At least that was the scouting report kind of coming out of high school. Who knows how much that's changed over the course of the redshirt season? But. You know, he seems to have a, a good amount of potential to him. Quentin Skinner is a six foot four redshirt sophomore. He has three years left. Again, big body, tall receiver. And then you have Kevin Terry, who transferred in from Texas Tech. He's a six foot one redshirt junior. He missed all of last year with an injury after transferring in from Texas Tech. Um, I think he has just two years left, but if he applies for a medical redshirt from last year, because he already had redshirted a year before. I think hypothetically he could eventually, if he wanted to, be like a seven-year player and have three years left. I don't know that for sure, but at least you could have a couple more with him. And then you have Keelan Robinson, who is a six-foot-two redshirt freshman. So you have a lot of size in that receiver room. I mean, you're talking about Trevor Wilson, the shortest one. He's listed at 5'11". I would kind of assume he's closer to 5'9". Luke Grimm's listed at six feet. I would kind of assume he's closer to 5'10". So those guys are, are maybe a little bit smaller there. Same for like Stephen McBride. Like maybe he's 5'11 or something. You have a lot of height there, which, you know, you would think that would help you in the run blocking game, especially with this team needing to seal on the outside with the wide zone and everything. Um, maybe it can, maybe it won't. I mean, as far as the uh, run blocking grades for, you know, some of the KU receivers, it's it's kind of hit or miss. And I don't think that's, that's really something that, um, I don't know, like it, it's not of over importance. It's, it's important, but you know, at the end of the day, what they do as receivers and what the offensive line does blocking, like that'll obviously be more prominent there. So they brought in one newcomer, mentioned didn't bring any high school kids. Douglas Emelian, though, the transfer they brought in, another Power 5 school at Minnesota, is sort of like a mix between a high school player and a transfer because he is a six foot one third year sophomore and he still has three years left to play, but I believe he still has a red shirt available. So technically, you could play him four games this year. He'd still get in some action, redshirt him, and he'd still have three years left to play, even if you don't, you know, three solid years out of him. We'll see what he can bring right away. I'm sure that just depends on the position battle, and if he looks like one of the best guys out there, then that obviously wouldn't be 
uh, in the plan. But he comes over from Minnesota. He had an 86 transfer grade out of 100 on the scale for 24-7 sports, which that relates to you know what that means. They say if you're an 86, that's a capable Power 5 starter or impact group of five player. If you know you get proper development and, and maybe you can get some more out of that guy, and then he's a, he's a good Power 5 starter, right? So uh, that kind of an interesting newcomer there. But as far as the returning production of note, because Emelian didn't really play at uh, Minnesota. L.J. Arnold had 27 catches. That was tied for most of the returners on the team. Again, mentioned him and Trevor Wilson, who were second and third in catches, still had less than uh, Kwame Lasseter did last season. Arnold went for 316 yards and three touchdowns. He uh, had six for 45 in his true freshman season in 2020. Um, But the games that we saw with Jalen Daniels, the numbers didn't, jump off the page. He had six catches for 57 yards in three games with Jalen Daniels being the starter. So that's not much lower than what his season pace was, but it would be a little lower. Instead of 27 for 316, that would put him on pace for, you know, 24 catches and around 200-ish yards. So a little off pace of what he was over the course of the season, but we didn't see a ton of it. Um, he did have some big highlight games, though, and that combined with the body and, and what he was coming out of high school, I think all leads you to believe that, yeah, this guy does have the potential to work into being that number one that you're looking for. The Duke game, he has eight catches for 68 yards. The Oklahoma game, four catches for 73 yards. And then the South Dakota game, didn't have a ton of catches or yards, three for 33, but he has the huge two touchdowns, including the game-winning score in that game. So he had some big highlight games which are positives if you can make that more consistent. Maybe he can be the number one on the outside. Trevor Wilson ended up with the same amount of catches. He had more yards. He's a home run threat, 27 catches, 364 and a touchdown. Year prior at Buffalo, he had 16 for 319 and three touchdowns, but he kind of faded as the season went on. I don't know if he was dealing with injuries at the end of the season, or maybe there wasn't as much of a connection between him and Jalen Daniels, or maybe other receivers just at that point had kind of caught up uh, into the system that that he would have been a year kind of ahead of time with the playbook and figured out a way to get by him. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's something. I, I think more so how I view Trevor Wilson, though, is he's just kind of that boomer bust guy. Um, like, think of a, you know, Deshaun Jackson, a what like Marquez Valdez-Scantling was with the Packers, you know, uh, Robbie Anderson in the NFL. Guys who are more boomer bust guys. Like, you're not going to see Okay, this week it's five catches for 50. Next week it's it's even a down week. It's four for 40. The week after that, it's seven catches for you know 80 yards where it's kind of consistent like that. It's more of reliant on, I might only make a few catches, but one of them could go for six. One of them could go for 40 yards because he is a boomer. He had seven games last season with less than 20 yards, and then he had four games with 50 or more yards. The only game that was in between, he had 39 yards, but it was on one catch. So he's very much a boomer bust guy who's, you know, probably the best deep ball threat on the team. He's a good special teams player. You can also throw him uh, little screens and and try to make uh, things happen in the open field with his speed and and ability to make guys miss. I kind of just view him as, as that. He's like, you know, he's a good number two for you, or he can rotate into certain plays and everything and be the guy that takes the top off the defense. There is very much a need for that on any team, let alone a Kansas team that, you know, being that they're going to be running the ball so much, you need somebody to be able to do that. And then Luke Grimm, um, 22 catches, 349 yards, three touchdowns for KU last season. He also had 19 catches, 
for 255 yards and two touchdowns in his true freshman season. Ironically enough, like um, he's a guy that I, I don't think the, the previous staff was going to take at one point, but then something happened and he eventually got his spot and good thing he did because he looks really good. And, and honestly, like it's all a matter of speaking. If you're talking to who's the receiver number one, your immediate indication is, well, the receiver number one is the guy that lines up on the outside. If you're a slot receiver, you're not really the receiver one. I think Luke Grimm could be the receiver one and in the slot. Maybe a guy like Cooper Cup kind of changes the way that we think of that in the offense. Honestly, he's kind of my favorite right now to be receiver one if you're just looking at it from a standpoint of who's the primary target, who's going to lead the team in catches, who's going to lead the team in receiving yards. He'd be my favorite right now. And a big reason why is just the connection he has had with Jalen Daniels. In games over the two years where both of them have played, and Jalen Daniels has thrown 10 or more passes. So I know I had some qualifiers there, but let us let me rephrase this. Jalen Daniels and Luke Grimm have been together on KU, joined uh, the team in 2020. So you have 2020 and 2021. There have been six games where both of them played and Jalen Daniels threw 10 or more passes, right? So I'm not going to count the games where Jalen Daniels in the his first game against Coastal Carolina went like one for two or another game where he went like three for five. But he had a sizable play. He threw 10 or more passes, and both of them played. Six games, 21 catches for Luke Grimm in those six games, 358 yards and three touchdowns. If you, you know, push that out to a 12-game season, that's over 700 yards, six touchdowns. Those are kind of Kwame Lasseter numbers who led you in receiving last year, right? And that's even accounting for, like, the first game that they played together where the numbers weren't really there. Otherwise, it'd be up even more. Um, in games where Jalen Daniels didn't play, meanwhile, that's eight games for Luke Grimm, 20 catches, so less catches in two more games, 246 yards, so 112 less yards in two more games, and one less touchdown. Clearly, they have a really good connection between those two guys, and I think that could help there. Um, and then you have Stephen McBride, 15 catches for 88 yards. They tried to hit him on a bunch of screens. They didn't always really work, but he's a guy who could also kind of take the top off the defense, hit more screens with him. I, I think you'll see kind of a jump in his play coming up this season. As far as the projected depth chart, like I said, I kind of view Luke Grimm as, as being the, the top target for you in the receiving game, but it feels like, you know, LJ Arnold should be one of the starters on the outside. I'd imagine Trevor Wilson and Stephen McBride in contention for the other spot on the outside. And then you see whichever one doesn't constantly rotate in. I'd imagine you're going to see plenty from Douglas Emelian and Kevin Terry, uh, Quentin Skinner, Tanaka Scott, I think will be a big part of the rotation as well. But the key question that you got to have here, like how full did Emmett Jones leave the cupboard? Because a lot of these guys that we're mentioning or that you're counting on to kind of break out or progress here in year two or year three or whatever it is, were recruited by Emmett Jones to the receiver room. And he is a guy who, you know, was known for his recruiting, was supposed to be known for what he could do on the recruiting trail. And if that is the case, you would think the guys that he brought in and, and stayed on this roster should have a bright future. Or maybe did he just kind of swing and miss and we didn't get to see the fruits of the labor? We're going to find out. And so that all goes into the idea that if they don't get enough of these depth pieces to kind of pick it up, and or they don't get, like, it doesn't have to be maybe true number one production. Maybe a committee by approach role is, is kind of fine if you have enough guys who are good enough, but will this unit be Big 12 caliber without Kwame Laster? Like, that's the big key. Can you 
at least be in line with the next, you know, worst Big 12 team. And again, they have some talent there, but it's a lot of unproven talent. You're asking on a lot of guys who maybe haven't played snaps or played small roles to, in Luke Grimm's case, like, can you be a receiver one? Or in LJ Arnold's case, can you be a receiver one? As opposed to just being one of the dudes. And then in guys like Quentin Skinner and Tanaka Scott, can you be productive role players as part of this? So the bottom line is that, you know, the positive is that if this group does have any of those breakouts, I mean, they could really be set here going forward next season, right? Every player that I mentioned in that receiver room, every single one, has multiple seasons left of eligibility. And honestly, a majority of the guys I said have three or more years left on the roster. So you're talking about if these guys, you know, you get a breakout or two, you're going to feel really set headed into next season. That's kind of been a theme. We said that with the running back room. We said it with the quarterback room. We said it with the tight end room. Like, that's obviously why it seems like maybe next year you're building to a bowl game. But as far as this year, it's not that they don't have some talent and haven't put a good amount of past recruiting resources into this spot because they have, even overly so, if you would have asked the coaches back in the spring. But certainly none of them have broken out yet. And as of right now, this is the biggest position of question on the offense, um, both in terms of who is the number one, in terms of depth, in terms of how many Big 12 caliber guys are there. Now, the other positive is that they have the personnel. Like, that's the other part of this that we mentioned how many viable tight end options they have. We've talked about how loaded they are at the running back position. We know that they want to be a run first team. If you're playing, you know, multiple tight end sets or you're playing multiple running backs or both, like a lot of these formations, we're going to only see one or two receivers on the field. Now, obviously, if it's, obviously if it's third and seven, like that's going to change. You're going to throw a formation out there with three or four receivers. But in downs ahead of schedule or on schedule for KU, I think there's going to be a lot of situations where you're only playing one to two receivers on the field, which lessens the blow there, right? It, it, it tightens everything up that your depth gets a little bit more squeezed down, and that could definitely help headed into the season. But they definitely need some of these guys to step up, and how much do they need a number one? How much can it be okay if it's kind of split up between two or three guys? That remains to be seen. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. David Lesky will join us in about 15 minutes. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear. Plus, they look really cool, and they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK. That's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. 20 till the top of the hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Eric Johnson here flying solo on today's edition, but not for this segment. David Lesky of Inside the Crown joins me now on the show. The MLB draft is still ongoing. So as of now, the Royals just selected their ninth player. They also had the ninth pick in the draft, uh, and that was Gavin Cross from Virginia Tech. So uh, David joins us now from Inside the Crown once again. Uh, what did you think of the selection in real time, and what are the Royals getting here? 
So I, I really like the pick um, because, well, well, let me go back. In real time, I was a little bit disappointed because I thought Cross was going to be the guy or one, one of the two or three options there. Um, but my dream was Cam Collier, the third baseman. Uh, he reclassified by the year in junior college, 17 years old, can really hit all that good stuff. Um, but I figured he's gone. I mean, he's every mock had him going six, seven, some as late as eight. And so I thought, all right, that's my dream that he lasts, but he's not going to. And then he did. And they didn't take him. <laughs> and that made me sad. Um, but, you know, Cross is a good pick because – a couple of things. One, the strength of the draft, at least the top, is college bats. And the Royals took one of the better college bats um, that, was, that was available. You could, you could argue there were a couple. I mean, it, it was really it's just a matter of personal preference of who was the best. And they took who they thought, I think, I assume, was the best. Um, he can kind of do it all offensively. He's got good back-to-ball skills. He has pretty good present power, but I think he can be better. I think the it just feels weird to think that the Royals can actually get talent out of players, but I feel confident in their <laughs> offensive development. Um, and they can get it out of him. And, you know, I think he, he is a, he's pretty aware in the strike zone. Um, I think he's got a good, just general plate discipline. Um, solid, solid player across the board. I think the tools can get a little bit louder as they refine them a little bit. And, and the interesting thing is that he, He's going to play center field for them to start. I, I don't think it'll last. I think that he's probably, in, if he finds up in a corner, um, but the fact that he's able, I guess we'll find it out for sure, but the fact that they believe he's able to play center field um, lends itself really well to him moving to a corner when that time comes. I don't think it's, I think it's a win, but overall I like the pick. I think it's, I think it's solid. I think he, you know, they got the value they need to get. I think it was worked out really well. Well, what you brought up with Cam Collier there is really interesting because let's go back to the trade the Royals made last week, giving up pick 35 and uh, acquiring some interesting prospects from the Atlanta Braves. But obviously part of that was losing out on a pick that you could use to increase your um, basically Mm -hmm. amount of money that you can go out and and give these players. Um, And if they were you know, to pay over slot or, or pay slot money to whoever they drafted at pick 35, then it wouldn't have mattered. But hypothetically, you could have taken somebody under slot there and used that extra money to get a guy like Cam Collier if the reason that he fell a little further in the draft wasn't for skills, it was because he wanted more money, the Royals would have been able to afford that. So knowing yeah. that that's a possibility now and, and knowing what you saw was also – you know, at pick 35 or around pick 35, do you like the Royals trade that they made last week more or less, or is it about the same? I actually like it a little bit better than I did at the time. And I, I, I was fine with the trade when they made it. Um, the, the reason I say that is because the difference between Cross and Collier is not huge. Um, I like Collier better. Some people like Cross better. Um, you know, People smarter than me like Cross better, and people smarter than me like Collier better. So it it really came down to a matter of personal preference, and um, I think I, I don't think it's crazy to say that Cross was a pick than Collier. It just I wouldn't have done that. And then when you look at what was available at thirty five, I think some of the guys who were there, um, who the Royals would have taken, I don't, I, they, based on the way they had drafted so far today, and, and well, mostly today. I don't think they would have taken the high school picture the Braves did, but I, I think I prefer 
the combination of Drew Waters and Andrew Hoffman. And CJ Alexander is just kind of there, honestly. Sorry if you're listening, CJ. But um, I think I'd prefer those two guys than Collier over Cross, Collier over Cross, and whatever pick they would have made at 35. It's it's close. Um, I don't I don't think it's it's not like a slam dunk or anything. But in my opinion, I think what they ended up doing is a better combination of players than what they would have. Um, but you know, ultimately, again, it goes back to personal preference, and I I, I think. Well, I guess more than that, it goes back to what the Royals' offensive development do. Because, again, this, this it all hinges on Drew Waters, right? I mean, Andrew Hoffman, I think, is a solid pitching prospect, whatever. But if if the Royals' hitting development team can work their magic on Drew Waters and turn him into, uh, I don't know, slightly below average hitter, 90, a 95 way to run straighter plus type there. You know, a little slightly below average offensively with some power, I, I think it's a win. If they can't, then, then you revisit it, and, and it probably looks a little bit better for the Braves. But ultimately, I at the, at the at, well, the information that we know right now, I like the Royals side of that a little bit better than I like the Braves side. Well, you mentioned not, you know, don't think they would have taken a high school pitcher given recent events today, and those recent events uh, through nine rounds of the draft, the Royals have taken all college players. Uh, a little mm-hmm. similar to, what was that, 2018, 2019, when yeah. the Royals took, like, all college pitchers. Now, it's not all of just one position or something, but it is all college players. It's close, though. It's only one catcher and the rest of the pitchers. So, okay. uh, at least today. Yeah. So, um, I, I guess that would be the theme of the draft, but any other themes or, or thoughts on that strategy, I guess, from uh, the Royals so far? Yeah, I mean... Last night on the conference call, I think it was Lonnie Goldberg was saying that, you know, this is the strength of the draft, so that's where we focused. I, I, I can only take them at face value, obviously, but I feel like there's some, hey, we've got to get these guys in line with our next wave. Um, and quickly, I think that there's always that concern with, with a front office that maybe is under a little bit of uh, stress. For a number of reasons. So, I, you know, I want to believe them. And I think that, like I said, they said what they said. And you, there's no reason to doubt that. Um, but I feel like that this is trying to pigeonhole some guys into a timeline. You know, not any, any draft pick after, I mean, even the second round is a little bit of a crapshoot as far as, oh, they overdrafted, they under, whatever. Um because opinions just vary so much across the board. But I I haven't, I guess to be fair, I haven't seen a lot of high school guys who I probably would have taken over the guys they have taken. And again, like seventh round pick, I don't really know, honestly. I mean, you can go by reports and stuff, but um, it does worry me a little bit that they are trying very, very hard to fit into a window. And it's, that's a, that's not the best way to go about the draft. Yeah, just it seems like a lot of the moves they continue to make, they're you know, yeah. operating under the timeline is now or the timeline is next year as opposed to five. Well, and like just... every trade is, we need somebody who's close. Mm-hmm. We need somebody who's why get the best player you can because you know what the Padres aren't regret, regretting getting Fernando Tatis Jr. for James Shields, you know, or Estory Ruiz in the deal where they they sent uh, the, the pitchers to the Royals. 
So, you know. Well, that would be kind I, of funny, though, because I was just thinking, Sturry Ruiz is now up in the majors and, and obviously mm-hmm. not a long ways away. Uh, so what you're saying is he's going to get traded back to the Royals for, for something. Yes. Yep. <laughs> it has been intended for Ruiz. It's done. No. <laughs> I wish. I would love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I know the Royals are uh, outside of the draft. You lost three straight games to, to the series for Kansas City. But um, – I don't know why, even though they did lose those three games, you know, two of them were close losses, they win the first one. That felt like one of the more fun series to watch yeah. the Royals this season. And I don't really know why. I don't know if it was just, you know, seeing something different, seeing guys that we haven't seen or what it was. But um, I guess which youngster were you most impressed by? And did you have that kind of same sense that I did? Um, I'll start with that because I absolutely had that sense. And, and I kind of wondered a little bit, you know, I go back to Thursday game. Thursday was fun. <laughs> I mean, to, to watch them get that win and they, they should have won on Saturday. That's there, there's a lot of, a lot of blame to go around there. But, um, I think some of it is there's just like these new guys who are really happy to be there. Not, they weren't over, the moment didn't overshadow them or anything, but they were happy to be there. I think there's some of it, and maybe this is me just totally projecting what I think is going on with the team, but we've, we've seen so much about these clubhouse issues. And on, on Wednesday afternoon, boy, they, they reared their head, um, in a big, big way. And then, you know, Sam McDowell from the Star wrote that story about how players texted him and they're not happy and, you know, start to, start to put two and two together and it's pretty easy to get four. (laughs) <laughs> when you start to think about that. Um, and it, it felt like you could almost feel the cohesiveness through the television, I thought. And again, maybe I'm projecting that. Maybe I'm projecting what I thought was going on. But you could really – it just felt different watching that team all weekend long. Um, and like you said, they didn't win. They should have won on Saturday. They could have won yesterday. Friday was a bad game. It happens. Um, but, you know – I, th- I think that to me was was some of the difference. And then as far as who was who impressed, uh, I, I, I don't know. That I can pick one. Nick Prado, I thought was probably the most big league ready player on the field of the guys who um, who were brought up, and <laughs> some of the guys who were already here. Um, Ryan O'Hearn, I'm talking to you. But I, I thought he he played really well. I think he looked good defensively um, after he got through Thursday's game where, I've said this before, but Kevin Gaston, he's never seen a splitter like that before. Nick Prado has never seen that. He could, I don't know how many at-bats it would take to, in the minors to see a splitter like Gaston's. He will, that, that's one of those things that you don't learn until you get to the majors. So, got past that, and then he got, he had a double, he had a couple of singles, he had a home run. Um, I mean, if they left him in the big leagues, which they've already optioned him for a number of reasons that are just out of their control, really. But if they left him in the big leagues, I think he'd be fine the rest of the season. Um, but Michael Massey looked good. I thought um, Nate Eaton was really impressive. His arm, my God. I, I, I knew he had a good arm. I didn't know it was that good. Because he threw, there was that play, I don't, I don't know if you were, were watching or remember, I can't remember what day it was, but it was one day he came in on a ball and threw behind the runner at first, who'd gone halfway, like you always do. And he almost got him because it was just a laser from center field to first base. I mean, it was that was really, really impressive to see. Um, so those three really stood out to me. But, I mean, it was just fun. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure you're going to see, you know, some more of those guys come up whenever 
we get past the trade deadline and, and some of these names move for the Royals that open up some of these these spots and everything. But uh, I'm curious how this stuff all affects that. Because obviously, you know, everybody mentions the, well, if you're an ALA team, you're going to have to play in Toronto and everything. Though, on the other hand, it, it might only be three or six games in the second half. Like, is it worth that big of a deal over that little of games to, to not trade for a guy? But also, if you're trading for someone, it is only over the course of, like, 70 games. So that becomes a, a slightly bigger sample size. Um, you also, you know, you, you had teams that we heard of, like the Yankees, who were interested in, in guys to begin with, like Michael A. Taylor and Andrew Benintendi. And then you also have the other part of it where maybe it's not just ALEs teams because – um, I would think the biggest hit that you would take toward trading for a guy who's unvaccinated, like Ben Intendi or Michael A. Taylor or Whit Merrifield or whatever, is that um, you know if you acquire someone and you have to play the the Blue Jays in a playoff series, and let's say you're playing them in the divisional round where there's five games, and you play two games in Toronto, um, and it's a four game series, like it ends three to one, or even if it does go five games, you're basically missing the the player you gave up all these prospects for for half of that playoff series, which is not great. So so how much do you think that could hinder uh, the amount of teams that are interested in or, or maybe the, the type of return that the Royals could get back for, for any of the players who didn't make the trip up to Toronto? Yeah, I, I think it's some, but not as much as those teams are leaking to reporters. <laughs> because it, the, the, I look at that in today's newsletter, and the reality is the Yankees play three games in Toronto. This, the rest of the season, and they are in the last 10 games of the year. They've got a 712-game lead, so that's not going to be a factor. The Red Sox, I think maybe, because that could be a big series from the end of the year. The Rays play five games. Uh, if I have a five-game series up there, so that could be a factor. Um, the, the other teams, it's, it's Guardians and Orioles. And the Orioles have played well, but they're not trading for Andrew Benintendi or Michael A. Taylor. So not worried about that. I don't think the Guardians are trading for either either. Um, either of those players, either. It's hard to say either. either. Anyway, um, I, I, so that aspect of it, I don't think it's a huge deal. And then you look at the playoffs, and first of all, the Blue Jays have to make it, which they are currently the sixth team out of the six playoff team field. The White Sox are playing a little better. We've said that a few times. Um, Guardians are, you know, they could get hot. They, they went 18 and was it five during a 23 game stretch. So they could overtake them. I mean, it's, they're not allowed to make the playoffs, and then when they do, if they do, their first series is going to be three games on the road because they're not going to be a top three seed, um, or I guess a top four seed. So, in all likelihood, so they will probably have to play three games on the road. So you're looking at a series. If you trade for somebody, and they have to go to Toronto, the Blue Jays don't play a home game until their sixth playoff game. At at best, um, I guess fifth if they were to win that wild card game on the series on the road two games to none. But it's the, the odds of them both making the playoffs and your team playing them in the playoffs are not very big. And so I think that there might be a slight decrease on the return um, if you're the Yankees looking at Ben Intendi or Michael A. Taylor. But, look, their interest was known before all of this, and they knew they weren't vaccinated. So, <laughs> for them to come out and say, oh, we're out on them now, it's just disingenuous to me. I think that it, it doesn't change a whole lot. I think maybe the, like I said, I think maybe the return dips a little bit. But, I mean, ultimately, I don't think it's as big a deal as some people are making it out to be because, you know, I think the odds that it impacts them are actually fairly small. 
Okay, well, quick update, David. Uh, I know this will shock uh, and awe everyone. Uh, the Royals took their 10th round draft pick, so the final pick for today, and it is another college player. It is a, a, a outfielder, so not a not a pitcher, but uh, 10 selections, 10 college players. Levi Usher. <laughs> what a! I mean, I, I can tell you all about him. He is a mm. he's an outfielder from Louisville. Um, his first name is Levi. His last name is Usher. He is oh, six foot two ten. Mm. Uh, I guess like he led the ACC in uh, steals each of the last two seasons. So perfect Royals outfielder. You you know more than me. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw it come across the timeline on. Uh, <laughs> no social media. Okay, so who is the uh, player of the week here for uh, the Everybody Royals? Everybody who went to Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I, honestly, I, I think, um, gosh, I, you know, I want to, I, I I've been debating this in my head. I, I think it's, oh my, see, I, I, Vinny Pasquantino, who had the big home run, he was just hitting the snot out of the ball all week. I don't know if the numbers were the best, but he's probably my choice. But, boy, I want to give it, you know, I want to get Prado in there. Because he's never gotten to be my player of the week, but I, I think it's got to be Vinny, mostly because I had the chance to tweet out my crush and Vinny, um, mm-hmm. and that made me excited. But uh, I mean, look, like I said, anybody who actually played in the games this weekend gets gets a nod. It's an honorable mention, at least. All right, love it. Well, he is uh, David Lesky. You can check out his recap of, of everything that happens in the draft or All Star Week or whatever goes on. Maybe a trade will happen with the Royals, and uh, we'll talk to you next Monday. David, appreciate the time as always, man. Definitely. Thanks, Eric. All right, that's David Lesky. Check out his work and subscribe at Inside the Crown. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. One hour down, two to go here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Case of the Mondays, next. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? I got to get out of here. I think I'm going to lose it. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was right now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You freaking me out, man. I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. How oh, does it calm down? Look around you. With Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk, 4 o'clock hour here on your Monday on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. That means it's time for your case of the Mondays, where we figure out who is having a case of the Mondays here today. First up, any pitcher in the made in the MLB, or you know, any pitcher anywhere right now facing Matt Carpenter. So Matt Carpenter, former St. Louis Cardinal, had some really good seasons with St. Louis and then kind of, you know, fell off the map. Batting average really tanked around the Mendoza line. Uh, Still had some power, still had some, you know, flashes here or there. Got, uh, I forget if he got DFA'd or non-tendered or, you know, just not picked up by the Cardinals. Uh, But the Yankees decided to give him a a minor league contract recently and, and eventually worked his way up to the majors. And he has been crushing Major League Pitching. The Yankees are having an unbelievable first half of play. They've been the best team in baseball so far this season. And it's funny because, yeah, Aaron Judge is is certainly one of the top two or three candidates for the MVP right now. But there is no scarier hitter 
in the Yankees lineup that doesn't just feature Judge but features a lot of scary hitters than Matt Carpenter at this moment in time. He has been, over the last month, the best hitter in the majors. I mean, over the last 28 days, here are his numbers. He's hitting 417 over the last 28 days with a 525 on base percentage. So more than half the time he's getting on base. And he has a 938 slugging percentage. Essentially, if you had a 1,000 slugging percentage, that would mean on average um, you are getting a hit every time up to bat. And overall, his OPS is 1,463. That is you know, absolutely bonkers. Usually, if you're like at 1,000, you have chance of like leading the majors. He has seven home runs. He has 21 runs driven in over the last 28 days. He's been the best hitter in baseball over the last month. He, in the last seven days, it's getting better. OPS is nearing 1,700 over the last seven days. Unfortunate for him that they hit the all-star break. Sometimes that can serve as a uh, cooling off period for some of these guys when you have you know a week off if you're not playing an all-star game or even if you are playing an all-star game it's just not really your normal routine and it can kind of make things a little bit different uh for the second half case of the mondays for chris sale the boston red sox pitcher no it's not just uh because they faced the yankees and he had to you know pitch to a team with matt carpenter on it but he broke his pinky on a line drive comebacker in the game and it was just his second start back after he had worked his way back from a fractured rib this is a guy who's undergone all sorts of injuries recently he's 33 years old now you know he was a, he was a constant Cy Young candidate for five six years between his time with the Chicago White Sox and then going to the Boston Red Sox um, but yeah 33 years old now he's only played in 11 games since 2020 missed the 2020 season 2021 only a handful of games this year, only a couple games played. And it's not just the, you know, it's just unfortunate injury luck. You have like fractured rib. That's not something from, hey, I'm throwing too hard or this is a natural injury that occurs in baseball. Same with the fractured pinky. Now, maybe you could say his, his windup is is a little bit more unnatural and, and it leads to, you know, him not being in the proper fielding position that they would teach you fundamentally when you're a kid where, you know, you throw a pitch and then you're ready to field the ground ball. Like his, his, uh, pitching form does not lend it to be that so maybe you know that would certainly impact not being able to react quick enough to get your glove there or uh being in a weird spot to get your your finger fractured um by getting hit by a baseball but overall some of these are just dumb luck now he's had other injuries too like had to have tommy john and stuff it's just unfortunate because he's been one of the game's more exciting pitchers and, and it's tough for the red Sox. you're looking up at the yankees how great of a season they're having the Red Sox sorely need pitching. They could have really used Chris Sale and uh, one of the game's you know, star pitchers who's been pitching well over the last two years when we've seen him. Hasn't been able to go as deep into games, but he's been pitching well. Doesn't sound like he's uh, going to get back into it anytime soon. Case of the Mondays for the PGA Tour. Cameron Smith just won the Open, and it's not just that there's a rumor going around that he could be joining Live Golf. Now, this hasn't been uh, confirmed or anything like that, but he could be joining the Live Golf Tour for $90 million. So that's not great because they don't want Live Golf guys winning these big events. By the way, you're welcome if you sprinkled him at 20 or 25 to 1, like we said last week. Uh, plus, we hit him on top 20, and we also would have hit our Rory and Jordan Spieth top 5 and top 10 bets. So you're welcome for that. Uh, nonetheless, 
it's not just the Cameron Smith one and he could be joining the Live Golf Tour, but also they missed a huge opportunity with Rory McIlroy, who ended up finishing third place. He was 18 under, uh, finished two shots behind Cameron Smith, who was 20 under for the Open. It's that Rory entered the final day with the lead and Cameron Smith just dominated the final day. He was eight under on the final round. Rory had a four-shot lead over him headed into the round. Only went two under on the final round. Is kind of a missed opportunity there for Rory to, to come home with the victory. And Rory has been as outspoken as anyone against the Live Golf Tour for the PGA Tour. He's also one of the biggest names on the PGA Tour. So if the PGA Tour would have had this guy who was just blasting the Live Golf Tour, he's the face of, of your golf tour, he wins this event in an event that actually is allowing some of the Live, live Golf guys to participate in it. Like, that would have been a huge victory lap for the PGA Tour. He doesn't win it. Cameron Smith wins it. Rumor he's going to join Live Golf. Also, David Faraday, uh, who, you know, he's, he's one of the more popular, like, media names, uh, one of the most popular media names. Uh, just in regards to golf with, you know, shows that he hosts, interviews he does. Sometimes he's, you know, on the course with the broadcast. He's going to be joining the Live Golf Tour as well. So not great for the PGA Tour right now. They are uh, feeling it today on your Monday. How about North Carolina basketball recruiting? They're feeling the case of the Mondays today. Haven't really felt it much over the course of really ever when you're North Carolina or you're Kansas or Kentucky or any of the Blue Bloods. Um, Gigi Jackson was committed to North Carolina. He's a five-star recruit. He's top 10 in the class of 2023. Really good player. He decommitted from the Tar Heels, which, you know, we see guys decommit, uh, not all the time, but at a pretty regular enough basis that it's not like some huge story or anything like that. Um, but it's very unusual for this to happen to North Carolina, for instance. Because that makes him the first player to decommit from North Carolina since 2003. And even then, in 2003, it was J.R. Smith who decommitted. Because he wasn't even decommitting to change schools. He just decided, hey, instead of going to North Carolina, I'm going straight to the NBA. I'm going out of high school. I'm going to the NBA when that was still a rule. So technically, it's been even longer than that since a kid has decommitted from um, North Carolina to, to go play, uh, you know, college basketball elsewhere. And then you add to it, there's the kicker to the story. The rumor has it that he's going to end up going to South Carolina. So you have your rival that he's going to go to after he's the first player that decommitted in 20 years, and it's not just like, uh, you know, he was this four-star prospect we were taking a flyer on. And I was like, no, this guy's a top-ten recruit in the country. Uh, unfortunate for North Carolina there. Case of the Mondays for Ian Rappaport of NFL Network. I like Ian's stuff, but feeling it today. Uh, Ravens running back. This was a report from him earlier today. Ravens running back J.K. Dobbins is no sure thing for week one. He hasn't had any setbacks, but his knee injury was a serious one and Baltimore has no incentive to rush him back. They protected him themselves with veteran Mike Davis regardless. Dobbins was not happy with this report. Took to Twitter, quote tweeted it, responded. Okay, I'm tired of being quiet. Come to me for your source, Ian Rappaport, because I might not even go on PUP, the physically unable to perform list, because that's how good my rehab is going, and I'm damn sure going to be ready for week one. Now, 
I will say, like, I don't think this just automatically makes that, like, oh, Ian Rappaport is, is, you know, wrong on the information he got. I'm guessing Ian Rappaport got this information from someone with the team or around the team, right? And, like, even if J.K. Dobbins thinks that he should be ready for week one, there's a chance that the Ravens just say, hey, you're a young running back. We, we used to high draft pick on you. Like, we want to protect the investment. We're going to just play it safe. I know you could be back for week one, but how about we know for sure we'll have you back by week four, whatever it is, right? So that's definitely possible, but that never looks good when that happens. So uh, Ian Rappaport, probably not feeling great um, in that regard. Okay, uh, next story is the future farm system of whoever trades for one Juan Soto. Soto declined a 15-year, $440 million deal. That is a lot of money to be leaving on the table for uh, Juan Soto. And, and it was funny, too, because I was, I was, like, listening to Ken Rosenthal talk about it on TV that, like, you know, and certain media members were like, oh, it's unreasonable he didn't take this. Like, at some point, he's going to cross over if he wants that much money that I don't even – even he's not worth that money. And I'm just sitting there like, yes, like $440 million, objectively, like gigantic amount of money. But that doesn't make it all of a sudden um, like worth the cost just because it's a giant sum of money. You know what I mean? Like you could be like, oh, Juan Soto declined a $30 million contract over three years. How could you ever turn down $30 million? It's easy for me to say that, but... If he's worth more than that, then it is easy to decline it. That was that was just weird to me because as if you're just like overlooking the fact that it's a 15-year, $440 million contract. Like you realize that is not even making him a top 20 paid player by average annual value. And Juan Soto is one of the five best players in the game and he's only 23 years old. So if you're talking about one player that you would most want to build your team around, it would be Juan Soto. Oh, like, duh, he's not going to take a a deal that makes him not even a top 20 highest paid player by average annual value, something that goes up, and by year seven of that deal, he's probably not even in the top 30 or 40. But nonetheless, he now intends, um, or or the the Nationals, I should say, intend to to field offers for trades because he's not going to accept that contract and we'll wait and see like that who knows that could be just a, a negotiating tactic by the nationals to be like all right you don't want to play ball ball we'll just trade you and from his perspective could go one of two ways he could either view it as okay um yeah that's fine just trade me away like the nationals are, are not very good and i want to get paid my money or he could view it as if he's someone who has stated to them like no i want to be here for life then maybe that that makes him more interested in in other regards i don't know the answer to that um, but I will say this. If a team ends up trading for him, which which this goes back into our uh, case of the Mondays here, their future farm system is going to be absolutely depleted. And I'm not even saying that's wrong. Like, if you're, if you're a team that, that has the financial ability to afford a Juan Soto, I don't care if it costs me my top ten prospects in the system. I am making the trade. He is 23 years old, and he might be the best player in baseball. He's a, 
had a bit of a, a slower start in the first half, but he's still like an all-star. He's still, you know, everything you could want. And this happened last year, too. He had kind of a slower start, and then he put up MVP numbers in the second half. Um, you do whatever it takes, right? Dodgers, Yankees, like, there's a bunch of teams. I shouldn't say a bunch. There is a fair amount of teams that could go out, break the bank for him in terms of what you lose uh, as far as the prospects go and also be able to afford him. And it's just unfortunate because it will end up like one of those giant market teams that, like, if he goes to the Dodgers, I'm just, I'm done. I'm so done. Uh, okay, case of the Mondays for me uh, on the calendar. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't think the Home Run Derby was tonight. I thought it was, like, Tuesday. Why would they not, like, get a day off before they did that and then do the All-Star Game or something? I don't know. Kind of weird. Uh, but, yeah, that is your case of the Mondays. We're going to be joined by David Lawrence, another DL, talking to KU football on the other side. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chuck Sports Talk. You're on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Bend on it. Did you know that on our website, klwn.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card too. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson with you here on another edition of RCST. And we're joined now by the big DL. Uh, David Lawrence joins us. We've had a, a lot of listener requests of late over the last several weeks to, to try to get DL on, on the show. Obviously, I was out for a couple weeks in Germany. David's been on a vacation and stuff. But we, we finally were able to line something up today. So excited for this. And uh we're now less than seven weeks away from from the football season. When when do things start to feel real for you, David? When do you start to uh, get chomping at the bit for the upcoming football season? Well, Derek, first of all, it's great to be on with you. I, I'm proud of you. You continue to do a marvelous job and and keep that program at the high level that Brian Haney uh, made it out to be early on. Uh, when do I start really feeling it? Probably. You know, when we get an 80-degree day and not 100, you know, football's not really made for this kind of weather. But I'll be ready, and I'm excited. And just going over the roster, you know, since getting your uh, text earlier today is, has made me excited. Yeah, it uh, certainly has some extra excitement this year with the way things finished up last year and the way things seem to be kind of going here. And uh, we've been doing our position deep dives. We we got through the quarterbacks, running backs, uh, tight end, fullbacks last week. We did the receivers today, and it seems like there's more unknown in, in that receiver position. Doesn't mean that there isn't some talent there, but certainly uh, not as much proven commodities when Kwame Lasseter graduates and he had more catches than the second and third guy combined. Uh, so, so how much do you think with the amount of I guess, viable pass-catching tight ends and, and strong running back room 
can that help ease that position group into this season? You know, I, I think it's going to be a position of uh, of numbers. You know, that we've got a number of people that can help out um, and see who can step up. Uh, we, we've got some length. You know, we've got some. You know, smaller, quicker people like Trevor Wilson. The length would be Lawrence Arnold headed by that. I love Luke Grimm. I think he's just a really good all-around Big 12 receiver. And uh, and then we've got several people coming up. I don't have the roster in front of me. Uh, that, that'll be competing for, for that time as well. But, but I think it's going to be a position of strength. And really, when you look at it, I mean, we lost Kyron Johnson and Kwame Lasseter, two major players of a year ago. Um, and then we lost some other guys. But, you know, we have most everyone back. And uh, we have lost some people in the portal, uh, quite honestly. And this is just me speaking from the outside. I didn't really see them in the two deep for this coming year. Uh, not that they couldn't have benefited us in some ways. Uh, but we have added... You know, I just counted up 14, you know, guys that will be competing for a starting position, some more than others. Uh, and so certainly this is going to be a better team. It's going to be more experienced. And, you know, let's start out with the best news. Uh, the rule that plagued Kansas uh, for over a decade is, is not being able to get our number up to the 85 and, and not being able to uh, – you know, sign more than 25, thus not getting our numbers past, you know, 55, 60. And I don't know where our number is right now, but I'm guessing it's a lot closer to 85. So it's really going to be more like apples and apples playing each other rather than, you know, teams with experienced and 85 scholarships plus numerous walk-ons playing a team, you know, with inexperience and 55 scholarship players. And I'm not suggesting that was last year, but but certainly in years past, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure David Beatty could could uh, chime in on that one. Uh, so you know, there's a rule that's going to benefit teams like Kansas. Lance Leipold has been on top of everything from the players that have left to finding those 14 plus players that have come in and filled a void uh, to add depth to add quality starters, uh, to add people that will compete for that starting assignment. And, you know, nothing uh, is a better coaching tool than having other guys, having that depth that, you know, if you take a playoff, if you take a practice off, if you don't come in with everything you have, if you break rules, you know, then you bring in this player. And that, that just makes everyone better, that competition that, Kansas uh, has not had a lot in the past 14 years. Well, tomorrow we're going to be previewing the offensive line. Um, The guys that that you love to give love to, that that don't get enough of it. Um, And a lot returns, I think, from the starting perspective when you have guys like Mike Nowitzki and Earl Bostic and stuff. But it definitely seems like they're going to have to develop the depth of the offensive line, which uh, that's always key. Every year you're going to have guys go down with injury. You're going to have to rotate guys in if – if they're tired or whatnot. Um, but how much improvement did you see from that unit over the course of last season? And, and does that give you confidence that they're going to be able to develop that depth and, and find those guys again this year? 
Well, it's interesting you missed, you mentioned quality and you mentioned depth. Certainly, the quality is there. Uh, I don't know about the depth, um, and you know whether it's there or not. On paper, I don't see the numbers like I do in other positions. But you know, let's put this out front that you know if you're uh, going to go into the season without you know your full full allotment of quality backups and threes, uh, then it would be the offensive line because uh, offensive linemen getting a rhythm. I mean, a lot of times you don't want to take those guys out. And uh, you mentioned Bostic. I mean, Bostic is just a testimony to Leipold and where this program's going because he, you know, he could have got a contract last year. Um, He's coming back for his, I think, sixth year. A tight end turned to offensive lineman, which basically I was as well. Um, he's got the athleticism. Mike Nowitzki, I think he's put on some needed bulk. Uh, so smart in running this offense. And then the guy that caught my eye, there was two guys. So I walk out to spring practice, and my eyes immediately go to. And one of them is Armaj Adams-Reed. I mean, this is a guy that came in maybe 60 pounds too heavy, but he had the feet. He had the push. I mean, he's got the backside that you need to move people out of the of the hole, and he has lost that 60 pounds, and he looks fantastic. He looks the way offensive linemen look in the NFL. Um, I think he could be – a fantastic player. So you're talking about what Bostic and Adams Reed, Cable Do is another guy that has potential to perhaps play at the next level. But but certainly Adams Reed and Bostic have that. Nowitzki is just a quality college football player that is returning. Um, so you know those are some nice pieces. Nolan Gorsica is a guy they added that's going to supply depth if he uh, and he may beat someone out. But I know he's been playing uh, multiple positions, all three of the offensive linemen positions. He looks a part of a Big 12 offensive lineman. And, um, you know, I, I, I think he's going to be a fantastic player here at Kansas. So I'm excited about that one, that position. It doesn't have great depth. Of course, they've added two offensive linemen. I don't really know how they're going to fit in. Certainly offensive linemen. Uh, it is a position you'd like to have a spring under your belt. And to prove that, just go back to Kansas in its first three games of a year ago and compare that to our last three games. Um, it's just night and day, you know, how much they improve because they didn't have that spring ball of a year and a half ago. Uh, but with that spring ball, I, I, you know, I think you need to go in with your guys in the spring and maybe these other guys can be depth can be uh, guys that can come in and play some spot duty later on in the year. Yeah, as, as far as that offensive line goes, I mean, what was the biggest difference that you did see over those last three games from that unit? Was it just a better understanding of, of what they were trying to do schematically? Was it, you know, just uh, establishing more chemistry together? Was it growing in, in strength as the season went on? What did you kind of see that, that led to such a big change? Well, I mean, to give a, a basic, is it, it's a different scheme. They've run a lot of outside zone, 
And the way they block that takes completely different fundamentals and footwork as far as where your first step, second step, third step goes, very different. And in, in some ways, it's almost like a, you know, a pull that they're doing to get out there on the perimeter. You know, that and just adjusting to all the plays, the personnel, uh, the way you pass block is always going to be different. And then just playing with the people and getting accustomed to the guys on your right and left, you know, as far as, you know, when you're going to go up on the second level, uh, when's the guy behind me going to take over so I can get up there. Uh, I mean, it's different with, with every tandem uh, that blocks, whether it be the guard center, guard tackle, tackle tight end. They have to work together. They are very much like a team within a team, and they need to get accustomed to playing with one another, and you simply just don't get that because you don't hit a lot in fall camp. You just can't. You can't afford to get a lot of injuries out there. And uh, so they didn't get a lot of work in full contact until later in the season. What is your your biggest or or what is the thing you feel best about as far as the offense goes right now? (laughs) I like our quarterback. And, you know, he's not officially named the starting quarterback, and I respect that. And certainly if Jason Bean beats him out, then Jason Bean is a fantastic quarterback. And Jason does have a tremendous talent set. But I, I've said it last year, and I'll say it again, uh, I think we could have a top four quarterback in the Big 12 Conference. And, uh, you know, he's going to go in with returning experience that exceeds a lot of them. And you look at, you know, I read just one random uh, ranking of all the uh, quarterbacks, and I think half of them didn't play for this team a year ago. They transferred in. Uh, I think Sanders of Oklahoma State was the only one. I think he was rated number one um, that, that played at the school of a year ago. And I would be nervous with that. Uh, I like our guy. And decision-making, athleticism, the guy can throw a cannon, and he's got the charisma to be a tremendous leader. Um, you know, we haven't had that top four quarterback in the conference for a long time, and it means a lot. That, along with turnovers, are the top two things in heading into the year, and that, that's just not this year. That's, that's every year. But, but we have that. We have that this year with Jalen Daniels and Jason Bean, whoever that might be. And, and that's exciting. And, of course, everyone points to the depth of running back, and it's there. And they're, they're going to find ways to get them in, uh, led by Devin Neal. You know, and who knows, he may not be appointed to start yet either. But that's, that's fine, too, because, you know, Sevion and, and others, um, I mean, these are viable options that, you know, if Devin – takes a day off, you know, he will be replaced. So, uh, and you can put different sets in there. You can put them in the slot. You can use one more as a power. Uh, High, High Shaw, I love High Shaw. Uh, we didn't see him last year, but, uh, I mean, he made a couple of runs. I looked at on tape from two years ago, and he can be fantastic. Uh, and so, you know, people talk about keeping them all happy, and that that's true. But you know what? They, they, they've got a 
they've got to keep our head ball coach happy. That's that's the main guy to keep happy. Uh, but yeah, certainly the transfer. You know, as long as they they're, they're here now, they're probably going to stay for a year and and then see what kind of success they can have. But uh, I, I think quarterback and running backs, the experience in the offensive line are are all pluses for uh, the offensive side of the ball. We're talking with David Lawrence here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Obviously, on the defensive side of the ball, uh, things were, were a little bit more of a struggle for KU last year, especially in stopping the run. And they went out and, and brought in a ton of guys via the transfer portal on this end. Uh, how much of, of the struggles that they did have last year, especially as, as it goes against the run, do you kind of attribute to the same thing with the offensive line, where just getting to know the scheme um, versus maybe having the right personnel, which you know they're adding on this year? Or I guess essentially how much of the issues that they had there do you think they can fix over this one offseason? Well, you just look at the – and, again, I'm, I'm throwing out the 14 transfers that I counted up. It could be more than that. But um, – you're adding a lot of players and, and, you know, I don't think there's as much as far as, you know, having, you have to play around the people uh, on the defense to get accustomed to that. Like the offensive line. I think, you know, I think you can come in in the summer and learn a lot. And some of those guys, you know, were here in the spring, like Lonnie Phelps, like Craig Young, um, Kalen Kerwin, that he was here as well. Gilliard was here. So they have a number of guys. And, you know, to say this as um, we have lacked uh, what's necessary to win in the Big 12 at the second level defensively for the past, uh, I'm going to throw out four years, um, question mark. Um, Something like that. We we just need more players. We needed more quality players. And, boy, did they go out and address that. Uh, I think we've got a couple more added on. Uh, McCaskill from Louisiana, I liked his tape. He's coming in. You know, Gilliard's just a big, strong, short yardage type linebacker. Craig Young, uh, when I mentioned Armand Adams re catching my eye and one other person, Craig Young would be the other and just go out and watch him. Uh, doesn't mean he's going to be a great football player. It, it means that he has the, um, the tools to play at this level, at the next level. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, when you're the fastest guy on the field and you're also 6'3", 230 pounds, he's it, it takes a while to find your home. And, and, you know, I watched him a lot playing in space, you know, like an outside linebacker hybrid uh, uh, secondary person. And uh, because that's a great place to put an athlete like that because there's not many of them out there. Um, and then let me throw out another name that um, I'm sure I was talking about a year ago uh, if, if we did any uh, interviews after fall camp. Jason Gilliam came in here, and I felt that he was maybe our top one or two freshman prospects after watching him uh, in fall camp. And he plays a hybrid uh, safety-slash-linebacker position, uh, had an injury, and we didn't get to see him play last year, and we really could have used him. But 
he will be there, but keep, you know, there's a name for you that hasn't been in the paper because he's not transferred in, and people have forgot about him. But Jason Gilliam, uh, he's going to wear number 10. I think he's going to be a fantastic football player here at Kansas. So what is it on this defensive side of the ball that you feel best about, and, and where is still your biggest question right now? Defensive line. Uh, I mean, because you, you there's no guessing on that one. You, you got, you know, Caleb Taylor uh, and probably four other uh, starting defensive linemen. I don't have the roster in front of me. Malcolm Lee, all, uh, Lonnie Phelps coming in. Yeah, yeah, certainly Phelps. You know, can do that. Um, they have shown that they can play at this level. Um, we didn't have a lot of help behind them last year, and this year we do. Uh, I, I think Caleb Taylor can be an all-conference player, if not this year, the next year. Um, but certainly they have the experience, some quality, understanding the system that you want to see. Um, the second level you know, we've been missing that for years, and I want to see it. I want to see how they put together that linebacking position, which has been added with about four new players that all show tremendous promise. Um, so uh, that that's probably going to be the key. And as soon as we get that uh, quality and depth at the second level, all of a sudden, you know, our back end and our front end is going to look better. Because you just can't have, you know, uh, that third of, of your defense that, you know, isn't quite up to Big 12 standards. And, you know, um, and all those guys that played at that position, you know, they've got competition. That's probably going to make them better. So, you know, you're going to have a – it doesn't mean that these newcomers are all going to start. I mean, these guys that are coming back, they, they've been through the trenches and, you know, uh, I, I'm excited to see how they improve. Uh, Krishan Brown, for instance, I think he's battled some injury. Uh, he's a kid out of Tulsa, and I've always liked him in practice. I, uh, I'm not sure, but I, I'm guessing he's been banged up a little bit. And, you know, I think he can be uh, a big impact player for this year. And then uh, a guy, you know, without talking about all 14 of these new ones, but Marvin Grant a safety out of Purdue. It's a pretty good league he played in, and just go watch tape of this young man. Um, I, I think he's going to be pretty special. And, and again, it's just going to push uh, the secondary of Kansas a year ago. What stood out to me is, is their youth. Uh, they had talent, and they were young. And uh, they gained valuable experience. Now they've got some experienced guys coming in, pushing them for playing time, and it's only going to make everyone better. You know, will everyone be happy with the playing time? Of course not. But you know what? That's that's what it is in the Big 12 Conference. You're going to have that. There's going to be injuries. You know, there's always going to be attrition. You're going to lose some people for this reason and that reason. Uh, but, but having the numbers up across the board defensively, you know, I don't see a lot of change in the defensive line, but – you know, they've shown that they can play at a pretty high level. Uh, but the linebacker position uh, and, and the secondary, particularly with the depth there, this defense will be uh, uh, vastly improved. And, 
you know, I'm, I'm excited about it. Can't really talk about special teams because I'm not sure who the guys are going to be and that, you know, the coverage units, but that's a big part of it as well. That, that Kansas, you know, when you look back at the 14 years, uh, they've struggled that, you know, if you don't match up on special teams, you don't have a chance, you know, because you're not going to overpower people, you know, offensively and defensively. You can't, you can't get hurt. You can't be a minus seven every time you exchange punts. You know, you, a Kansas can't, can't survive that. And then and lastly, it's, it's turnovers. It's just one of those things that happens to winning teams. They don't have them. You know, Orange Bowl is what, plus 17 in the turnover number. So you've got to be solid right there. And that's, that's why football is the greatest game in the world. There's just so many components that go into this. But I, I love our leadership at the University of Kansas. And uh, I, I think Lance Leipold is is on top of, of just every little component so far. And, you know, does that mean he's not struggling? Of course he is. He's He's got a very difficult job. And, you know, I have no idea on how many wins, you know, this is going to add up to. There's key games throughout. Certainly uh, the, the second game down in, uh, a, you know, late summer game in the middle of the day in Houston, Texas, on um, papers, you know, not – one that most head coaches would really favor, and I'm, this coaching staff obviously didn't didn't uh, schedule that one. But it could also be your greatest win of the season, uh, a future conference opponent like that. And you know, having a revenge motivation would do. But you know, how we come out of that tough non-conference schedule and heading into conference, and then a lot of success is always relative. It's always relative to the other teams. You know, I can go back to the days of well basically the last 60 years you know on years that we've really been successful one thing you look at is you know the conference maybe wasn't at its very best and you know who's going to open doors this year we've had some new coaching staffs that have turned over and you know on paper everyone's talking about being better this year and and maybe they are the transfer portal certainly makes it easy to bounce back from attrition but we've got a plethora of experience i think just intangibles as far as everyone's on board they're excited and you know what i I was a part of this at kansas back in my day when you don't win and all of a sudden you've got an opportunity to have success under a coach that you really really like mine was fambro um I mean, I think that gives you an incentive that it just makes everyone better and feel good. And all of a sudden, people decide they can play through pain and and discomfort because it means so much to them to be out there, to be a part of a winning culture that they've missed out on the previous years. Well, David, I appreciate it. You you got me hyped up, ready for football season. I'm I'm ready to run through a brick wall, man. Let's do it. We'll we'll start right right as you get out. We'll meet at the Free State track, and uh, we'll run some gassers. <laughs> I love it, love it. He is David Lawrence. You know where to hear him on the call of the games. David, appreciate the time as always, man. Always a pleasure, Derek. Thanks. That is David Lawrence. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depending on it. Well, coming up next week. 
We are going to have the start of our latest edition of RCST Trivia. Uh, if you are unaware of what RCST Trivia is and, and haven't been paying attention to the show for very long, uh, essentially we started back in 2020. Uh, no NCAA tournament looking for something to do. And we came up with this idea called RCST Trivia, you know, and we put together a 64-person bracket of listeners to the show or people who uh, just have a, a knowledge or, uh, you know, love of, of KU basketball and KU basketball trivia history. And we put them against each other and they whittled their way down. And now we've been doing it for three years and we have characters and, and people that we you know, our, our mainstays of this event that we've kind of gotten to know over the last three years. It's been so much fun to do. It's been great to give away prizes to the listeners, and, and I think it's been fun to, you know, listen to. I look forward to doing it every day that we've been doing it, and I think for a lot of people, you know, it's kind of like watching Jeopardy. You want to see and maybe you learn some new things that you didn't know. Maybe you get to test your own knowledge. Maybe you get to see, you know, answer the questions yourself. It's just a fun thing to do. So um, the combination of that and the success that we've had there with RCST Trivia and through three years now, uh, how do we add to it? How do we grow? How do we make it even bigger? We've gotten a lot of people, a lot of listeners along the way, whether it's somebody who has been in the basketball event these past couple of years, whether it's somebody who has not been in the basketball event but is somebody who is a listener to the show, who has come up to us or you know told us on social media or you know when they're coming by to pick up their prizes here at the station, mentions it then or whatever and goes, that's awesome. When are you doing the football one? Whether it's they just want, you know, to do the football one as well. We've had a lot of people who have said, too, like, you know, I, I love KU basketball, but I, I'm more of a football fan, to be honest. Like, KU football, I love KU football. When are we going to do a football one? Or, or I'm more of an expert in the KU football one. Or I, I think I can do better in the KU football one. Or just like, you know, you just want to do it because it's something fun that you enjoy, you're passionate about. So, all of your voices, all of your comments have been heard. And at first, um, we discussed it a little bit of if we were going to do that last summer. Um, ended up, you know, we had some, uh, Nick uh, ended up leaving for 610 and, and we were kind of, you know, working through that and everything and, and what we were going to do here at the station that it, it sort of impacted like some of the summer plans that, you know, you're kind of scrambling on the fly and, and you don't have as much time. That combined with just more and more people saying they want to do this because there is a little bit of a fear. It's one thing to get the bracket filled up with 64 lists. It's not just, you know, the people who are interested by it, but it's the people who are willing to be courageous enough to, you know, go on air. And if you miss the first or second question, dealing with maybe what you view to be some embarrassment for that. I, I never want anybody to feel embarrassed about it, and I hope we make it an environment where that's not the case. But uh, that becomes a little more difficult in the KU football one, right? Like, first of all, uh, there's not going to be as big of a fan base that is, you know, knowledgeable or, or loves KU football past lore and history as much as there is for the basketball side. So already we're kind of whittling down who would want to jump on, and then you have that other fact of, you know, are you willing to – come on the radio and, and not be embarrassed if you miss stuff, right? Like, uh, so, you know, just worried about would we fill it up? Would we have enough people? I think we will. I hope we will. Uh, I sure do. Uh, but we are going to do it. And, in fact, we are going to do it next week. So we're going to have registration come out here in the uh, next day or two. We might do a – we'll do an on-air version. I'm thinking probably Wednesday. Maybe we do the on-air version Wednesday. 
We can do a podcast version um, on Wednesday or Thursday, and then we'll do a uh, social media version on Thursday or Friday that you can get yourself registered for it. It'll just be first come, first serve. So, you know, we'll see how many people will get registered. Um, there is like a, a max limit that we're going to have, but also the, the structure is going to be a little bit different for this uh, go around because what we're going to do is instead of it being a, a big bracket, you know, we're going to have less contestants in this, but you're going to be guaranteed more, more matchups, more games and everything. And we are going to have, you know, four or five different groups, so to speak. And say of the, the four, I think the idea is to have four groups. Of the four groups, the four, you know, conferences or divisions, however you want to put it, you're going to play a round-robin schedule. So you'll play everyone in your division once. I mean, we might only have like 20. We might only limit this thing to 20 people, right? And you'd have four regular season matchups at that point. You'd be in a division of five. Top two in each division um, would then essentially make it on uh, to a bowl game. And, um, you know, we'll have like number one of this division plays number two of this division. Number one of this division plays number two of that division and so forth. Then after the the four bowl games that we're going to have, which are sponsored, um, and you that's how you get prizes. If you make it to a bowl game, you get prizes. If you win a bowl game, you get even more prizes. We're going to, along the way, release a weekly poll. And like college football, you know, it won't matter much, but it kind of will. So at the end of everything, um, you know, we'll, we'll have the weekly rankings. And again, it won't really impact things. It'll just be kind of for fun and everything. Once we get to the end, I, I think I, I said you'll have one versus two in the bowl games. It, it won't be that. You'll have the four division winners. Um, we'll match, you know, two of the division winners up with two of the others in the bowl games. And not only will those be bowl games, those will essentially serve as the semifinals, so to speak. And the winner of those two bowl games between the winners of the division will play in the championship game. Then the other two bowl games will be battles of the second place teams in the division. So if you get second in your division, you can still make a really good bowl game, win prizes and everything, but you won't be competing for the national championship where you can get even more. So that's how we're going to do it. As far as the format, it'll be a little bit different than the uh, basketball trivia tournament as well. What we're going to do, we have, and, and shout out to Kyle Martin, who was a three-time contestant um, of the basketball trivia event for kind of, you know, helping me throw some ideas off him, and, and he would throw some ideas off me and um, helping kind of hone and, and shape this thing the way it was, and I believe this is his idea of how to do it is how we're doing it. So thank you to him. Um, but what we're going to do, we have, you know, in the basketball one, we just go really easy question, easy question, medium, hard, really hard. And if one person gets it right, one person gets it wrong, it's done at that point, right? So you could go home after one question. It could take 10 questions. This one's going to be different in that we are going to simply have four questions. You miss all four, you get all four. Either way, that's all you do. Four questions. Now, we haven't totally secured the overtime idea yet. Um, so I guess we could hypothetically have more than four. I, I think we will do overtime. Um, so anyway, we have easy, medium, hard, and really hard questions. Those four categories. First down, or the first quarter, however you want to view it, will be the easy question. That'll be worth three points. It's worth a field goal. Second down, or the second quarter, will be the medium question. That'll be worth six points. So a touchdown with a missed PAT or missed two-point conversion. The hard question, or the third quarter, will be 
the um, uh, seven-point play, touchdown and PAT, and then the really hard is going to be worth eight points, so touchdown and a two-point conversion. So, you know, it's, it's just based on whoever scores more points. The max you can get is 24, again, barring overtime. Um, how we're going to do overtime is we'll, we'll flip a coin and, you know, whoever uh, wins the coin toss or however we, you know, decide to do that, we'll come up with some random way to, to pick who goes first, gets the option of choosing what category of question they would like to go in. And then the, the second person will get to choose what category of question they would like to go in based on what the first person did. And then it flips, just like college overtime, right? If a team scores a touchdown in college overtime, goes for one, the second team has the option of scoring the touchdown and going for two. Or, you know, the first team gets a field goal, the second team has the option of, of it's fourth down and one at the 16. Do you kick the field goal for the tie or do you go for it for the win, right? So there's going to be some decision-making in there. Um, and that'll be kind of how that works. So in theory, it's a little different because if you miss your medium question, but you get your hard question right, and your opponent hits the medium but misses the hard, you would actually be winning. So it gives a little bit more credit for hitting the the harder questions there, um, which I think is a nice little wrinkle. It makes this thing more like a college football season. So I hope that a lot of you who are listening are, are going to join and are interested in doing this. Uh, again, it's, it's free to enter. It's going to be for prizes. How we are going to do this as far as the, the scheduling we're going to have specific leagues based on days you're available. So we're going to have a Monday division, a Tuesday division, a Wednesday division, a Thursday division. Friday, we're leaving open with the idea being that if you happen to have a week or, or something where you can't make it on that day, Friday is going to be kind of like our rescheduling day where it's like, hey, we couldn't do this matchup on Tuesday for the Tuesday division. We'll just put it on Friday and, and figure it out from there and, and you know, get all that stuff working. That's kind of the idea there of what we want to do. Um, so uh, we'll release the more information coming up later this week, but I wanted to get that on, on everybody's radar, and, and we really hope you join. We're going to have some cool sponsors again, and uh, it, it should be a good time once again. Is uh, It'll lead us kind of right before football season and you know get you feeling ready for KU football, I think. Anyway, uh, that is more about our RCST Trivia football event. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.